Hello. Hello again. <laughs> Hi. <laughs> All right, you ready to do this? I'm ready. All right, awesome. Hey, everybody, welcome to the Craft Business Life podcast. My name is Lee Solomon. This is a podcast all about uh, actors and other artists and people in related fields, but mostly actors, and about just how they do what they do, their day-to-day lives, the business, the craft, uh, how they manage to balance everything, advice, training, stories, just all kinds of stuff about that life. And my guest today is a really great example of so much of this. Um, I've known her a long time, on and off, and um, she's always been one of my favorite people, number one. But number two, you know, she's had a really versatile career and still and, and does still uh, in the theater arts. You know, she's an actor herself. She's a singer. She produces cabarets with herself and others performing. And she's had a whole career and has a whole career as a dialect coach. She's been a dialect coach on Broadway shows and all kinds of stuff. So uh, I cannot wait to get into all of this and more with her. Uh, so Amy Jo Jackson, thank you again so much for doing this. Of course. Hi. Hi. <laughs> so um, was my list that I just gave of your uh, various aspects of your career was that accurate did I miss anything no I think you got it I pretty much like when I when I do the like here's how I self-identify within the industry list I generally say actor singer cabarettist uh dialect coach and glitter alien uh so that's just how I give that run <laughs> gotcha all right so I did pretty much have it I didn't really miss yeah. any, of the, any of the major ones good I'm glad <laughs> Um, so along with that, and you know, you and I just off the air discussed how, how busy you are right now. And as I told you, this has become one of the emerging themes of this podcast about how busy actors are, uh, and rightly so, and it's tough, but, um, right now, uh, you know, I always, I always start with asking the, the guest, you know, what's your day to day life like right now? What are you focused on? What are you working on? I know at this point, you don't really, I don't believe, correct me if I'm wrong, you don't have a day job at all other than your, the things you're actually doing for your career, which of course is great. And I know you worked hard to get to that point. Uh, but what is your day to day life like right now? And what are you focusing on? Yeah. Um, so I'm, I'm like currently unemployed with a job coming up for like a month and change in June. So, it's it's the kind of thing where it's like I'm going through and I'm doing really focusing on like going to as many auditions and classes as possible. Uh, it's nice knowing I have a job coming up, but mainly right now, like the day to day is like you get up and you you go to the EPA or you go to the appointment. Uh, I have a, I'm doing a lot of gigs where I'm like doing like one off comedy or singing gigs. Uh, a lot of like that sort of thing where someone asks you to come on and do a couple songs in a concert. Um, a lot of that sort of thing, and then yeah, my my dialect 
work. I do also like Shakespeare coaching and just like general acting coaching, but most of the stuff people hire me to do privately is dialect coaching because it's the most specialized. So I do a lot of that. I do a lot of recordings for people. Um, a lot of folks are busy actors themselves. So they'll just send me the sides. Like if they're decent enough at self-study and aren't like needing me to break every single thing down for them, they'll send me the sides and I'll record them the sides and like a little listening track. Like, here's what you should be thinking about with this and that. So that's very easy because I can knock out a few of those like in the day, uh, just like while I'm in between things. Um, but yeah, I, it, it kind of depends on the day, but that's the, the thing right now, going to the gym and PT, trying to stay healthy. And it's just so much easier to like do that when you're in your New York city groove and when you're off doing a regional contract, for me at least. So I really try to like get focused and, and get into that, like, taking care of business and yourself groove when I'm in town, you know? No, that makes sense. And I think it's, uh, you know, I would say it's, it's understandable. And I think people have told me this, that for, for people who are based in New York, running around auditioning constantly, et cetera, you know, if you do get a regional job, you know, doing regional theater, um, other than all the hours you are busy with the show itself, it's kind of a break because you can't be running around to doing your new, usual New York stuff. It's it's sort of uh, it, it, not the time you're working, but the other time, if when you're in New York, you would be running around, whereas when you're out, yeah. out of town somewhere, most likely, for the most part, you're kind of chilling, right? Yeah, it's a weird thing because I will say that I'm usually in less pain in New York. Usually when you're doing a show like seven to nine shows a week, kind of depending on, I, I've had the good fortune and also, uh, painful for my body misfortune of doing a lot of shows around the holidays that, um, means that they're able to sell more shows because they're generally family shows. So sometimes, you're booking, like, they're paying you more, but you're doing, like, nine shows a week, which sure. can be really hard on your body. So I will say a lot of regional gigs, yeah, you're trying to find stuff to do, but you're also just spending a lot of the day, like, soaking your feet and, like, stretching and, and just trying to get your body to feel good based on what you're what you're doing to it every day. A lot of limping around on regional gigs. Whereas in New York, because I'm not doing that same repetitive stress in my body, I, I feel better, so I can kind of push myself more. But, yeah, I mean, you're like, depending on how isolated you are, you know, I've done a couple of gigs in a Little Rock, and that's two planes to get almost anywhere, you know, so you're not really going anywhere on the day off. When I work in Boston, then it's like, all right, I'm done, like, my show's done Sunday night, I'm hopping on a train, I'm back in New York, I've got an audition, and a this, and a that, and I'll go back Tuesday afternoon for my Tuesday night show. Like, so, so it can be, uh, it can be intense if you want it to be, but yeah, it, it is kind of nice. I do catch up on a lot of like reading and, uh, and like streaming television shows. I don't watch much TV, but when I'm on a gig, sometimes it's like, all right, I guess I'm watching this entire show <laughs> during this contract. Well, you make, you make a good point, which is, I mean, on the one hand, yeah, you have more genuinely free time than you're used to, but also, you know, like you said, in New York, you're running around doing a lot of different things, but when you're on a gig, you're actually dancing and moving around whenever on a stage, as you said, seven or nine times a week. So it's, it's more of an actual toll on your body and almost you, you need the balance of the extra rest time, perhaps. Yeah. 
Well, and like even stuff like I just did a show in Boston this past fall, uh, Fun Home, uh, which is like the most. Uh, I never left the stage. My character didn't. Everyone else was on an awful lot, but I never left the stage. Uh, but I kind of love that kind of show. It, I don't. I. I don't mind it because my adrenaline doesn't have to keep spiking up and down. You know, if you're doing a lot of like, you're on, you're off, you're on, you're off. Like, there's a lot more energy expended and like, okay, I gotta, I gotta go to this, do that. Where if you're just on stage kind of existing, then it, I, I find that less stressful on my body. And I was wearing like Chuck Taylor's jeans and a t-shirt. Like I was, I was in a much more comfortable day to day. Like that show didn't take a toll on my body, but because you're on stage the whole time and it's like a dry space and you're singing at various points after having not spoken for 15 minutes, there were different challenges in like, how do I keep my voice super healthy all the time? Because there's no room for error because I, I can't leave and go take a swig of water. You know, I can, like, bite my tongue on stage to try to get more saliva going, but, like, I have to be <laughs> very present and ready to go. So it's more just, like, offstage maintenance. And, like, when do you stop drinking water so you won't have to go to the bathroom during a show? And, like, you know, trying to manage all that kind of stuff, um, which is just more technical than, oh, my gosh, my costume is trying to murder me, which I have had a few of those before. Yeah. The kind of like big campy parts that I do. And I love that. And I love a fabulous costume, but often the most fabulous costumes do not feel so fabulous after, after a while wearing them around. Of course. Um, by the way, <laughs> I remembered something else I wanted to say at the beginning. And of course, it's already an example of this because, you know, I'm already all over the place with you. There's so many things in what you just said that I want <laughs> that I want to uh, break down, and we will. No, no, it's great. And there's we're we're going to be all over the place. I know that already. But um, I meant to tell everybody for the listeners. Amy does have a hard out of time. Uh, we still have plenty of time, but when that happens, if we have to end a little abruptly, uh, please know that uh, if and when Amy can, uh, Amy, if you will. Uh, we'll come back and do a part two at some point because I know that uh, I'm gonna just want to keep going with you. So <laughs> we got we got plenty of time still on this one. Don't worry. So um, okay, there's a lot of different things already that you said that I want to that I want to go off on tangents with. So let me start with a technical acting and performing question based on what you were just talking about when you're doing a part that requires you to be on stage the entire show, as you were describing. And um, I've seen Fun Home, and I assume you're talking about the main role, right? Yeah, the, the adult Allison, yes. who's the cartoonist. Yes. Yeah. And so to the best of my recollection, uh, and please correct me if I'm wrong, you know, she's on stage the whole time, she's narrating, she's in scenes, but sometimes she's in the background watching other scenes, right? Yeah. This, it's all a memory piece that she's trying yes. to go through her memories to make sense of them. Right. And to kind of make them all make sense together as, she, as she's trying to write the, the graphic novel that she eventually writes. So, yeah, there's a lot of... We did it in a three-quarter thrust in a small theater. So even being in the background of a scene, I'm still, like, standing directly next to some audience member, you know, um, so you're, you're, you're always on, even if you're like throwing focus 
to someone else as they're singing a song and you're, you're kind of watching yourself live this moment. But yes, you're, you're right. There's a lot of, there's a lot of intense watching of things happen as you're trying to kind of make sense of it. And that, that brings me to my question, which is, you know, it's one thing if, you know, you're on stage and either it's one of those things where there's another scene going on next to you and the audience sees you, but you're not supposed to be... Right, you're like um, in a breeze kind of thing. Yeah. Or yeah. doing something else silently in your world, but not aware of at all that other scene. Right. Uh, and there's different variations on this. So in this case, the actual, like, the actual script, the actual idea of the show gives you more of an actual, you're actually doing something, you're actually watching this memory as if you're thinking of, yeah. if, if I'm hearing you correctly. But in yeah. general, how do you as an actor keep that amazing level of focus the entire time you're on stage without without distracting from the actual scene when you're not supposed to distract from it without be, you know, being distracted by the audience. Totally. It's like all the things theater actors have to worry about times a lot more. <laughs> so what's, what are some of your techniques or strategies as an actor to, to tackle a, a role like that? Yeah. There's a few different things that I, uh, discovered experience. One is that me, Amy Jo, as a human being, is very focused. I am excellent at, like, laser focusing in on a thing in many different areas of my life. So I was already kind of predisposed to understand that kind of obsession, that kind of obsessive quality, and be like, I'm going to look at this thing now. So, like, that is something that, like, I already had going for me that I was brought into the room. Um, but then... There's also the the writing is so good, like which helps. Sometimes when you do things that you're really trying to elevate and make it make sense, like you're having to work so hard. For me, if I just kind of took it at face value and went, okay, I have the actual graphic novel that Alison Bechtel wrote in 2006 in my hands. I can read it. I can see that. I can experience it. So, like, I know that that happened. I know that, like, she eventually writes the book, you know, no matter what happens on stage. I know that we're going to get to a point where my character writes the book. So if I just take that at face value and go, but I can't write it if I can't understand it, if I can't see it, then... If you think of it like a detective story, kind of like, all right, I'm going to go back. What did I miss? What did I not see because I was in it? Now that I'm standing outside, I'm just trying to look for all the little moments, flickers of expression across an actor's face. It helps that the cast is fantastic. So, like, I'm just, they're interesting to watch, and I'm watching them for new things that they're doing, or, like, does that tell me anything new that I missed? What does that mean? And then, also, I'm drawing the whole time. So that does keep you very active because they, they had me, my, my director and I like had, uh, we have a little like rolly, uh, table, like a drafting table on wheels that we could move around the space. But I, I had initially been leaving the, the notepad there, the drawing pad there a lot and going out kind of like looking at things by the, by the end of the rehearsal process, like I did not walk around the stage without that in my hand. So I was always sketching 
which was also very helpful because it would give me something very specific to do. But since it is energetically focused on what is happening in front of me, and because I've played in a lot of ensemble shows and I am really good at knowing when it is my moment and when it is not, and how do I support whatever moment that is happening, whether it is one that features me or one where I need to give energetic support to someone else, I'm really good at at, at giving support to other people. so when I am drawing, I'm not like flailing around. I'm, I'm like keeping the movement small, but I'm keep and I'm keeping the energy focused and out and very intently on the other person and trying to draw something from them. So that if someone sees me, they see someone actively doing something, but because it is doing something that is happening in front of them, like I couldn't be doing what I'm doing if the scene isn't happening. If that makes sense. Like I'm not over here like doing a one act play about how I'm drawing this space. <laughs> or whatever it is. Right. So so I think it's, as long as it's all hooked in and looped in, you know, I as an actor like to go see shows and I'm not always watching what I'm clearly supposed to be watching if I find something else really interesting, you know? I remember seeing a play one time and there was this actor in this minor role who was like over tending bar. It was like a scene with like six people in it and he's over to the side and he's like, like uh, washing these martini glasses or something or like wiping them down and like getting the drinks up. And he's not doing anything that's feeling focused, but I I was like, this guy is so fascinating to watch. And then the big turn in the play is that he like takes over, it takes everyone hostage and he becomes the lead. And I was like, Oh yeah, because I put the best actor in that part. I see. So of course he was really interesting to watch, but that wasn't anything he was doing wrong. It was just because he was very invested in what he was doing and everybody else wasn't as invested. You know what I mean? So that's a few things. I think always just remaining curious and letting each performance surprise you, which is a little easier to do, honestly, when you're just standing there and you're like, it's uh, whatever comes at me today is what comes at me today. I do find noises from the audience distracting. I don't find visual stuff as distracting. I wouldn't notice people getting up and leaving so much, but I'm very sensitive to sound which is unsurprising also being a dialect coach. So like if someone's like crumpling a bag of chips or, oh, we'd have the occasional like cell phone go off. Or like there was one time where someone clearly like had their headphones plugged into their phone and it was in their bag that the, there was music playing, like yeah. a whole album played. Yeah. But you could only hear it in one part of the audience, but I could hear it because I've all of that. So I find those things distracting, but you just then really have to double down on what you're doing. You have to acknowledge like, oh, this is annoying. I can hear what song this is that's playing and <laughs> that's not part of our show. And then just really focus on your scene partners so that you're still telling the story, even if like that's driving you crazy. And that's all you can do. You're not, you know, I'm just a human. I can't like pretend it's not happening. I can just like really invest in what I'm supposed to be investing in and try not to let that bother me. So yeah, I'd say all those things. <laughs> yeah, no, of course. And of course the whole cell phone thing is, uh, you know, is a real issue with theater these days, and that's a whole other story. But, um, yeah, no, absolutely. And, you know, it's that real balance that when you really are a trained and serious actor that you have to strike between, as you said, being genuine on stage and, and, you know, you hear these stories about, you know, actors who have these small parts, but they really draw attention because they're so in their own moment. And, and that's uh-huh. a great thing, but you also have to know from the outside, you know, that it's not your job to be too distracting at that time and so forth. And of course, you know, your whole thing about being someone who's easily able to strongly focus, 
I mean, that's got to be a great quality for an actor, not only in your actual work, but, you know, in your life, especially someone like you who does so many different things. Whatever you're doing, that that moment, you're able to focus on it and be good at it, and then you jump to your neck, you know, you jump back to actor brain or whatever it is. So, mm-hmm. yeah, no, that's Yeah, cool. I mean, obviously, there's, with, with anything, <laughs> there's drawbacks. I, I would say, on the whole... I am better and better about figuring out how to let that serve me rather than let it make me, uh, I don't know, too, too rigid or too, um, like so focused on one thing that I'm like maybe missing something else that's right in front of me. There's a little bit of that, but I, I'm, yeah, like I said, like I'm at a point in my, my work and my career where it's like much easier to go like, okay, well maybe that, maybe we can just like, let that go. Great. So you did a lot of reading about this. Great. Now let all that go and trust it's going to show up rather than being like, I must bring all of the text to the text. You know, I must bring everything I've ever read into the, you know, just that's a bit where I can get like a little, <laughs> a little intense about it. But overall, I think, I think of it as a, an asset to me that um, I just kind of can trust a little bit more sometimes than, than uh, try to, uh, death grip, uh, my way through things with, if that makes any sense. It makes perfect <laughs> I would say, sense. Oh, yeah, it's, it's, I, I find it beneficial or it, or it served me thus far, so. Oh, no question about it. And, uh, you know, I, <laughs> it's so funny. It, it took me so long to learn real stillness and calmness in my own life. And I oh, wish yeah. I had that back when I was acting more than a much more than I did. So, but anyway, um, so, uh, yeah. And of course that's the classic actor thing of be really thorough and diligent in your preparation. And then once you're in the moment, trust that it'll all work out. Cause you still got to be in the moment at that point. Uh-huh. Yeah. So, uh, you alluded earlier to, uh, your dialect coaching work and that you make people, uh-huh. uh, recordings and stuff. That's another thing I wanted to get into with you is the whole dialect coach thing. Um, first of all, tell people a little bit of your, your resume on that. You've done Broadway shows. You've done a lot of different things, right? Yeah. I mean, my big thing is Kinky Boots, yeah. uh, which is closing April 7th, but we opened April 4th, 2013. So if the run has far exceeded, I think, most of our expectations as to how well it would do. And then people I worked on the that national show. tour. People oh, seem to really love the show. Yeah. It's a really, it's a beautiful story that's presented in a very feel-good manner, yeah. which is just like, really, I don't know, healing and lovely. And and the the tour, which is now non-union, is still out, which is fabulous. That like people are people are getting to see it like in places where maybe you're not used to seeing like a a gay black man as the lead role who is half of the show in drag, you know? Like it's it's very I think important for people who maybe are in communities where that's not as normal as it is in New York City uh, mm-hmm. to be able to see that. So so yeah, I worked on the first national tour for three years before um, it, it turned on Union. And I worked on the Toronto production. So I did all the North American ones. And uh, yeah, I've done, I mean, I'm going to forget. Because now what I do, I don't, I don't take really production work anymore unless it is like very short, uh, sh- not short form, but unless like I'm not going to have to be in the rehearsal room every day. Like, I love Pinky Boots, and I was like, this is great. I'm happy to have this job, because also, like, 
it's the kind of thing where because people have been in it a long time that I don't have to be there all the time. You know, I can kind of dip in when we have someone new. I can go see people and do a brush up, but I'm not I'm not there every day, you know. But sometimes when you're doing newer work and development and you're there all the time, like it's awesome and I love being in a rehearsal room, but I was finding there was a while there where I was like, I'm in the rehearsal room more as a coach than I am as an actor and that needed to shift for me to be just like feeling more like myself. Sure. Um, so I do a lot of stuff where I'll maybe consult on a production, meaning I'll go in and do three hours work or they'll bring me into work with one actor. Or like I did this um, uh, in January, I went to New Hampshire for the weekend and did dialects for a production of Billy Elliot. So like I recorded a bunch of tracks for people so they could listen to those beforehand. And then I went in and I like worked with people for two days straight, like just eight hours of session after session and watching rehearsals. And then when they finally did uh, their designer run, I, I noted that from a video. Um, and that was fine for me because that's like very, uh, a, a very fun way to engage with the show without me having to be there every day. And meaning I can't be like doing actor stuff too. Um, I did, uh, let me see, Clinton, the musical, which is off Broadway. I worked on, um, I worked with Carrie Butler on her, Hillary Clinton, and then I worked with, there were two actors who played Bill Clinton, so we worked with uh, them on there. That's really more idiolect work than dialect work, meaning the particular, the idioms of a particular individual. Um, so, not necessarily so, so, impression. Right. So, wait, say again? Oh, not an impression. Not an impression. That's exactly what I, mean, I was going to ask. Okay. Yeah. It's, I mean, because you're not, uh, I'm, I mean, you could call it that to a certain extent, but really like what you call it in the field is an idiolect, a particular mm -hmm. person's way, way of speaking. Um, mm -hmm. And then you try and get it as close to that as possible, but it was a broad comedy too, so it didn't need to, like Hillary, there's nothing inherently funny about the way she speaks in the way that there is about Bill. Like it's very easy to make Bill into a comedic character. People have been doing it for years. With Hillary, you saw like Amy Poehler struggle with it, you know, like Kate McKinnon found a way to make it funny, but it's not through the way she sounds the way it is through the way Bill sounds. You know what I mean? Sure. So we... We just tried to find stuff like what can we latch on to that will help this comedic take on it for this actor, you know. And uh, so I did that. I did some work at the Pearl uh, on some dialect stuff and uh, Welsh language stuff, which I don't speak, but we somehow got them speaking Welsh through through some assistance and uh, my my uh, transcribing stuff that Welsh speakers were sending to me um, for a Henry IV Part One. And then I, I do a lot of uh, classes uh, at, at, like, say, the Vineyard, or I've done classes when the Pearl used to exist through the Pearl. What else? I've done some regional stuff. I did, um, oh, when I did Noises Off in 2017, I was in it, and I also coached it. So we just did that. Like, normally I do not like to coach something I'm in, but that mm -hmm. um, we did uh, – Basically, like how how you would if you're the dance captain and you're in the show, where they'll record the rehearsal and the dance captain will watch it and then give notes. So they would record it and I would, but just an audio and I would listen. So we'd go home. Voices Off is a blast, but it's a long show. So we'd go home. I would note it. I would like listen to it, write everybody's notes, and then hand them up the next day. Or so. so we didn't do that like every night because that would have been a real uh, stress on me, just as far as like focus and sleep and that sort of thing. But um. Yeah, I did that. Just a lot of that kind of thing where it's like, okay, if it's not going to be like a huge time commitment as far as number of days I'm working on it, you know, I love it. It's great. It's a it's a fun way to work on material I would otherwise never be working on. You know, there's plenty of stuff that I'd have no reason to get called in for, but like 
like I, I was working with an actor a couple weeks ago on Hedwig. He's going to go off and do it in New Zealand. And he's Australian trying to do a German accent. And there are some American accents in there. So like we were, and he's going to go do it in New Zealand. So we were, we were playing around with uh, various things for him to try. And like, there's a few different American characters. What do they sound like? You know, how, how much of an impression are you trying to do? And how, you know, and uh, playing with all that. So we did a few sessions on that. But I really like doing that kind of stuff where it's just, feels creative. I don't like to think of dialects as prescriptive. And I think a lot of people do. Like, this is the sound change. So do it like this. I think the more you can connect it to what the person's trying to do and how am I, the actor, telling this story and how can I use dialect as part of that, I think the more fun it becomes and the more successful the implementation of the dialect is. So that it's not just like a coat of paint you slap on top of it. It is something you couldn't tell the story without. That's how I like to approach it. And I've, I found it to be a much more exciting way of thinking about it for most actors I work with. Because that's not how we tend to learn dialects at school. You know, we tend to learn sound changes and drill. Um, and I just don't, it's not, it's not fun for me. I mean, it's fine. I can do it. I'm very good at following rules. But I'm, I'm much more interested in like, all right, how, how does this story and this person want to live like in my mouth and, and, uh, like, how do I, how do I enjoy this experience? So it's not just, yeah, following rules in order to get the result of, I did the accent well, you know? Well, that's very interesting. And that's, a, that's, uh, I think a, probably a really good point that most people wouldn't think of. I know I didn't. Uh, but, you know, I do want to get into some of the technicalities of it too, though, because I'm fascinated by it. It's not something I ever learned or was able to do. And, uh, it's, it amazes me. Um, but first I want to ask you, and I want to tie it back into how what you just said helps too. But how did you learn these skills yourself? And then how did you decide you wanted to be a dialect coach? And how did you get, get into it doing that? Uh, it's a very natural extension of my skill set as an actor okay. to start with. Yeah. So, like, I was, I'm a bit, the first full musical I ever did when I was 11 was Oliver, which is all Cockney accents. Mm-hmm. So, like, that's the first accent I learned, and I just learned it by watching the movie. The movie of Oliver, <laughs> just over and over. Yeah. And then I also, I found that that was really fun, mm. and I grew up watching a lot of, like, British comedy. My parents loved um, like a bit of Fry and Laurie and Blackadder and uh, all, all the Jeeves and Wooster, all the stuff with Stephen Fry and Hugh Laurie. Uh, so I like grew up hearing all those guys doing a bunch of different British accents. And uh, I just like to imitate it. And I, I grew up in Texas and, and not in a place where people have terribly, terribly pronounced accents. North Texas, it's suburban, you know, Dallas, Fort Worth, you, you don't hear the twang that you'll hear, like, obviously in a more rural area. But um, but I was definitely more interested in sounding like I was from Great Britain than I was in sounding like I was from Texas. So I, like, man, in high school, people would, <laughs> very, friend, in a friendly manner, this was truly not not bullying, but uh, they would just see me in the hallway and just shout, American, Amy, you're American! Because <laughs> uh, I would just always be, not even meaning to, speaking in a British accent. I was like, I don't know what you're talking about. They're like, well, it sounds British to me. Um, so I was like, just always playing with sound in that way. I have a very strong ear. Um, like, I, I took piano for two years in, 
I want to say like end of elementary school, beginning of middle school, which was a real trial of a time uh, for me and for my mother, who was the one who was trying to force me to practice. Because it was just like too many steps. Like I've always been very musical, but I always learned music by listening to it. Um, so like I could sight read okay if it was just me singing the notes on the page. But then when you want me to like put my fingers on the keys, be like, okay, I can tell you that's an E. And I can look at it on the page and know that's an E, but it felt like such a slow process. Mm-hmm. So I would get all these like stickers in my piano book for memorization because that was how I learned to play anything at all. I'd have to memorize it. I'm like, oh, this is the part that sounds like this. You know? Mm-hmm. So, so I was always a super oral learner in that way. I would like record my lines to memorize them and listen back. Um, so, you know, then I did, like, in high school, we did uh, Brigadoon, and we did My Fair Lady. And I played Fiona, and I played Eliza. So that's, like, three accents and two parts right there. Well, actually, Eliza's really, like, three accents. When I coach people on that audition material, it's really three accents, because you have her cockney sound, and then when she, like, it, you have her, like, fi- the end of the show sound, which is just, like, a very beautiful received pronunciation, meaning that standard upper-class British accent. But then you have when she goes to the accent Gavotte, you know the show where, where she's really trying so hard. Oh yeah, uh, I just so saw the really, I just saw the current production down. recently. Yeah. Oh yeah, so that that that's a different accent. I mean, it's it's on its way towards something, but it is much more labored, and you're doing different things with your mouth. So it's like that's really three different accents. Um, so like they, they had a guy who I think was the older brother of one of our students who was in uh, in the theater program at UNC. I, I moved from Texas to Colorado when I was in high school, so this is the, these two were, were in Colorado. And um, UNC has a, has a good theater department, and he was really good at dialects, and I don't know if maybe he was kind of like I ended up being in college, like a TA to the voice and speech department, but he would come in and uh, teach us the accents. But I was already really good at them because I had watched the movies, <laughs> so I just like... <laughs> parroted those sounds and like really understood how to make them knock around my mouth in a way that sounds like what they're supposed to sound like, even though I didn't like technically know what I was doing. Mm-hmm. And, uh, so he'd be like, well, great. You don't need my help. But like, that was the first time I'd ever worked with a dialect coach with this, this kid who was probably 21, you know? Um, he like in my memory is like very tall and much older, but he probably was like a child. Um, so then when I went to school, I went to the Boston Conservatory uh, for musical theater, and they have a great voice and speech department there. And they always have two TAs, um, called, they're just speech assistants is what they're called there, uh, picked from the senior class. And so from freshman year, everyone was like, well, we know who one of them is, because I was just always really good at voice and speech and Shakespeare and sounds and accents. And like, that's, that's just where I really like would thrive. So, um, so then, yeah, I was a TA my senior year, worked with a lot of people on all sorts of things. Actually, primarily, we would work on Shakespeare, really. That's what I worked with most people on uh, in, in school. But then when we all moved to the city, I started getting calls from classmates being like, hey, I have to go in for this thing, and I need a, this kind of accent. Can I, like, buy you coffee, and you can help me with the side? And I'm like, yeah, sure. I, it was an embarrassing number of years before I realized, like, oh, I should charge money yeah. for this, because this is a specialized skill. I didn't think anything of it, because for me, it was fun. Yeah. Um, but so... Eventually, like, so we learned dialects in, in college to a certain extent, but they were really quick and dirty. Um, but because I was interested, I, I, the teachers, the speech teachers gave me a lot of extra resources because I was like, please 
like I want everything you got. So I like had a bunch of cassette tapes that had all these different like primary sources. The primary source is a person who actually speaks in that accent. Sure. So like for German accents, it's a bunch of German native German speakers. Mm-hmm. Um, and then like, um, just they they like I don't know really um, pointed me in the right direction. And um, I I don't know now I'm at a point where because they also taught us phonetics in college. I, because I can read and write in basic IPA, it's very easy for me to go, like, pick up someone else's research and make it happen in my mouth by looking at it. Like, I can go, oh, okay, that's what this sound is? Interesting. And then I can listen to different samples, because obviously with contemporary accents, what with the internet being so widespread, a lot has shifted from, um, like, if, if you're doing a play set in the 50s, it's very different than if you're using a, a like, a speaker. If you're doing, like, a, uh, like, once, uh, has has Czech and Dublin accents, but it's pretty contemporary. But if you're doing a place that in Dublin, like I'm, I'm trying to think, uh, and well, any like Sean O'Casey play, which is in Dublin, but like any like more turn of the century old fashioned Irish play, it's going to be a very different sound just because of contemporary speakers. But there's still so much available online, so I can just like listen, write my notes and observations based on what I'm hearing, compare it to other people's research, and and then find what's going to work for the project and for the actor. So that was a very long way of saying it's just like I'm I'm spongy in that way. I'm not spongy as like a dancer, shall we say? Like I don't pick up dance steps super quickly. I'm better than I think I am, but I'm not good at dancing. Like like I don't go to dance calls. I, I'm a great dancer if it's a play. If I'm in a musical, they'd not let me dance. That kind of thing, you know. But uh, but I'm so I, it's just like I don't have the physical intelligence that I do the like understanding of of what what I'm hearing and what that must mean. Like the tongue is doing, or maybe try it like this. See if this helps. I also come from a long line of teachers. Like my mom was an elementary school teacher for many years. Uh, her mother was a school librarian. Uh, my uh, grandfather, my dad's dad, the public speaker and, and, and like, like well-known Sunday school teacher back in the day kind of thing. So there, there's a lot of like teachers in my family and, and, and being able to like communicate things to people and, and help people to get to a better understanding of a subject is something that just like makes sense to me as a human. So I think combining that with like I, I know what it's supposed to sound like, and I, I can't help everybody, but there's a lot of people that, like, I'm, I'm able to talk to in a way that they understand uh, and kind of adjust it for more nerdy actor types and, and the people who are like, I just want to know how it sounds. Like, please just help me not sound stupid. You know, like, I can talk to, like, kind of both sides and, and anywhere along that scale of people with varying degrees of, like, interest in, like, but why does it sound that way? You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I think that that's, that's partially why the people that do respond to me as a, as a coach and a teacher have, because, you know, my job is just to help you. I'm just directing traffic, really. Like, here's where you're going right. Here's where you're, you're maybe heading a little too far north now. Like, let's, let's bring it on back this way with this sound. But just trying to show people what direction they need to go in. Yeah. So... Let's, let's just a little bit more though, if you don't mind. Let's, let's look at it from the more technical side. Cause again, this is what I'm fascinated by. You know, if mm-hmm. you're working with someone who is the opposite of you, doesn't have that instinctive ear, doesn't have that instinctive ability for accents at all, 
and, um, you know, really needs to be taught in a sort of a technical way. Um, first of all, you know, of course, there's, there's so many different accents from all over the world and all over our own country. And of course, in every country, there's a lot of sub, sub, you know, specific different accents. So, is there an overarching technical way to start, no matter what accent it is? And I'm thinking you're going to say the International Phonetic Alphabet, or IPA, which I believe you referred to earlier. And what's funny about that, by the way, is that I remember when you and I first met, I have this memory of you talking about the International Phonetic Alphabet. I had no idea what it was. I had no idea what you were talking about. Oh, I'm um, such a nerd. But no, this is, this, but now I'm fascinated by it all these years later. So am I correct? Is that kind of a, a, a place to start? Uh, no, I never start with IPA. Uh, okay. I rarely use it. And okay. I use it for me. Um, I use it because the, the thing that's great about IPA is it always means the same thing. If you refer to your notes five years after you did a show and you're like, what did I write? What was that sound? That's going to mean the same thing. As opposed to like, if you write dark A-W, like that doesn't, it might conjure up. They're like, oh, I remember sort of what I did, but it's not technically speaking. The, like the, the symbol that represents an exact sound. The problem with starting with IPA when working with people is, is most people didn't learn it. Or if they did, they learned it in school and they didn't keep up with it because it wasn't interesting to them and it feels like school. You know what I mean? So it doesn't feel like, oh my gosh, I have to go in for this audition in two days. I don't want to be looking at a bunch of symbols around the thing and being intimidated by them and reminding them, reminding me of how well I didn't do at this part in school. You know what I mean? Now, some people, like, I usually will ask because there's a few symbols I like to use because they look like what the mouth is doing. So I'll sometimes break those down. So I'm like, even if you don't read phonetics, look at this and let the visual of it help inform you as to, like, how we're going to produce this sound. I would say there's not one place to start uh, depends on the accent. Okay. Um, overall, it is easier to start by listening. Um, that is the best way in. Because we usually, when you think of someone who, or, or even yourself, if there's like an accent that you like do a lot, you're usually starting initially by parroting someone you know, or like a character that you know from film or TV. Um, so usually like that's how we, most people I have found, are playing around with sound to start with. Like a lot of people, when Summer Heights High was on HBO um, for a few years, like you'd hear a lot of people just like goofing around talking to friends in Australian accents right. because they're they're saying lines from the show yep. and because it was like very much around all the time. So um, so starting there, so you at least have a familiarity of what the sounds are, even if you have no idea how they lock together, is useful. And then um, different people learn different ways. So I don't always figure out exactly what hit in the hour session I usually have with the person. But mm -hmm. we'll try a few things so that they have different tools to then work on their own. Um, so, like, for, for a lot of people, I will use phonetic symbols for certain sounds just because it's like, um, like the, the O that we say, O is in boat or goat, is a diff song. It's two sounds, O, O. So I'll sometimes write those two out, especially if we're then going to go do like, they we're going to do a broad Irish country accent where they're, they're not really using that diff song. They're only using the first part of the sound, the single stage vowel, this oh. I like to show the two parts because it's like the symbol for the oh sound 
actually looks like I've, I've like taken an O and, and, and like squished it and the top is burst open. I'm terrible at describing things visually. So <laughs> this is probably, if, if you know what symbol this is, you're probably like, I don't know if I'd say it looks like that. It, it kind of, we learned it in school, like it's a sound in hook and it looks like the little handlebars on a, on a motorcycle. So we're like, it's a, it's a hook. It's a little, uh, like, like the, if you look at the handlebar thing as being like a hook shape, that's kind of like where it is. So I like it because it looks like, all right, if I squish my lips together, it looks kind of like I've taken that O, oh, which is exactly what your lips are doing. Squish a little bit, now it's an O. Uh. Um, and then the, I'll play around with things like that, like the various uh, shadings of ah uh, are represented by like how far forward or back they are in the mouth. And like you can look at that and see that in the symbol. So for some people, that's very helpful because they are super visual. I like to get people in the experience of their bodies because in my experience, um, most people, that's the last thing they think of. Like they, they think of dialect work as being purely an experience they have through their ears. Right. And not one that they have through their mouth, which of course it, it is because it's coming out through your mouth. And if, if you're thinking of, especially like a non-native English speaker, um, you have to think about, well, what does their language sound like? And so what is their tongue accustomed to doing? What is going to be difficult for them? That's why like most, I mean, even a lot of native English speakers, but like why most non-native speakers can't make that TH sound, either the voice or unvoiced, but as in think or as in those. Like it's just not in other languages. So it's so hard to do because it's not a thing their tongue's ever had to do before, you know? It's like us trying to do a lot of like clicking sounds, like like in different African tribal sounds. We just don't know how to do it because right. it's never been required of us. Right. So, so if you're trying to emulate someone who has not made that sound much before or is not that successful at it, then it's helpful to think like, oh, okay, well, maybe it's because the back of the tongue has a lot more dexterity because it's, this is a German speaker, so they make a lot of their R's at the back of their mouth. Oh, okay, so maybe, like, if I think of everything being more energized back here. So, like, you'll, you'll find different ways like that, and I try to get people to think about their, their mouth as actually being, like, not bigger than it is, but, like, having, a, like... The shift, a tiny shift can make a huge difference. Uh, and I think a lot of people don't necessarily start with that understanding or, or thinking of their mouth as, as being that dexterous, that versatile. Um, and then also, like, uh, there, there's a lot of, uh, I try to get people to, like, use their hands for certain things. I'll use my hands to, to describe certain things visually of, like, what's going on in the mouth with the tongue. And I'll sometimes have people do that. I'll have people, like, put their hands on their face, do different visualizations, and then, like, uh, you know, different physical cues just so that, you know, like if you're in a dance class or a yoga class or something like that, say I'm in a yoga class and I'm in a down dog and the teacher comes by and they're like talking to everyone and they don't tell me anything, but they put their hands on my low back without even necessarily moving me. I can go, Oh, I'm not really, I need to like pull like my, my hips away from my, you know, like you might have a better understanding because someone's come and given you a physical cue even if they don't give you the language for that. And so I try to give people like the things they can do to put, like put their hands on their face or like around their mouth or, or like you're going to, you're going to like pretend you're throwing a ball, this sort of thing to, to hook it up to something happening in their mouth. And uh, that can be very successful. Like for glottal stuff and, and uh, glottal onset that you have like, like say in like a Cockney accent where you have like a word, like, like letter, let's say. So instead of it being letter, as we would say with a D, with the tip of our tongue, or or in RP, in a, an upper class accent, they'd make it a T with the tip of the tongue, letter, 
we're going to maybe make it with the glottal, which is the, the back of the tongue stopping the sound. Let us. And so a lot of people, when they're practicing that glottal, will get kind of swallowed, it'll get kind of stuck. So I'll make them like flick their fingers forward, like they're flicking a little paper football across the table or something, mm-hmm. that kind of thing. Just practice that forward, that let us, let us, that mm-hmm. kind of movement. So it's not let, let us, let us, or, yeah. or what have you, you know. Yeah. So there's a bunch of different ways in, and I think it's useful for all of us to play with all of them because I think to a certain extent we're all every kind of learner. We just tend to really like click with one side. Like I click with oral learning that I'm definitely like visual in a lot of ways and, and kinesthetic in a lot of ways. So it's just like, I think if we can like all use all of them, we get at the nugget of the thing factor. Um, but yeah, the, I, I would say I would, I would start with how it sounds and then, and then we try and figure out what is in that particular person's way based on their regionalism and their habits and their ideas of what the sound is like, and maybe also, this is a big thing, what accents they've done a lot of before, uh, that might be in their particular way. So, like, when I went into Kinky Boots, we had quite a few people who just come from the company of Priscilla Queen of the Desert, so they've been doing these Australian accents for, like, two years. And when you're going into a working-class Midlands accent, which is what Kinky Boots is, which shares a lot of stuff in common with, like, a a contemporary working-class London sound, those are some sounds in there that if you lean too far in one direction or the other can start to sound Aussie, which isn't a problem unless you're someone whose mouth is like, oh, we're doing Australian now because that's like what they've been habituating. That's what's like in their muscle memory. So you want to steer them away from those sounds, which might not be then the most 100% accurate Northampton sound, but it's certainly not going to sound Australian. So it's, it's that kind of dance um, around you know, uh, someone's background and then trying to meld that with like the best version of how do we get this person to tell this story in the way that's going to keep them out of their head so they can just act, you know? Right. So that's exactly one of the things I was going to ask you. And that circles back to what you said earlier, but so, but on a simple level, you know, you know, in a technical concept, you know, I think what you said is, of course, great. There's a million different ways and different people have different needs. And of course, that's, that's fantastic. But just out of curiosity to understand the, the most basic technical breakdown of how accents work, essentially it's variations on sounds, consonant sounds, vowel sounds, etc. And those are produced by mouth shapes and and how you push the sound out of your mouth as you said and things like that right yeah i mean all all it is is how do you make sound right how do you make sound as this person right there there are different placements uh which is not the same thing as 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 a resonance like mm-hmm. we talk about in singing or or in like a, a link later technique type thing placement meaning like I kind of describe it as like, where is the sound manufactured in the mouth? Most general American accents are like slightly forward of center mm-hmm. in the mouth, mm-hmm. uh, which explains why we use a lot of our front articulators, but they're also like not as crisp as you get in a lot of uh, more more upper class English accents. So like if I move my placement forward right now, I've moved it forward to where I would do it for RP, which is right behind the teeth. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm trying not to change any of my, my pitch or anything too much. But really all it does is it helps me recruit those front articulators a little bit better. So I, mm-hmm. I have to work less hard for to like 
crackle and come off off the tongue really readily. So like when I used to host this at a restaurant and I'd have to yell over a lot of people, <laughs> I would often use this placement without changing any vowels, but it sounds pretentious so people think you're from somewhere else. Right. Uh, when it's really just like, no, it's just so that I'm not having to spit, the, spit everything out so much. If you're up there in the front articulators, are doing all that work for you because you've changed the placement, then you're just not having to work so hard. So it is, it's, yeah, it's a combination of a bunch of different things. Sure. Um, but, I mean, those things are basically, yeah, vowels, consonants, placement. And, then and yeah, pitch, like that that can pitch and, and tone. Those, uh, and, uh, like, I, I can't even begin to talk real, real accuracy about uh, tonal language because I just don't know it, it, in enough uh, specific depth about how they work specifically, but like Thai, um, some a lot a lot of Asian language um, accents that are that are tonal, uh, unlike English, which is like not tonal. It's not it's not connected to pitch. You know, I can I can say it's not connected to pitch, but I can also say it's not connected to pitch, and and the words mean the same thing, but they wouldn't in Thai. Um, and so then when you have a Thai speaker coming into English and, try, and trying to then have an English speaker go into using a Thai accent, like there's a lot more to juggle there that I just don't have enough knowledge about. There are, there are plenty of people that do. Um, but, but yeah, that's, so that's another component, but yeah, it's, it's basically just how do I manipulate sound to fool people into thinking I'm from somewhere else? Yeah. Really. No, it's fascinating. And so so, yeah, another fear would be, especially if an actor feels like they're not comfortable with the accent, so worried about doing the accent exactly right, so worried about saying the lines yeah. exactly right in terms of the accent, that it affects their truly being in the moment, affects the rest of their performance. So yeah. how, do you, how do you work on that? I guess that goes back to what you said, too. If you could elaborate on this idea that you can approach the accent from the other side, from why the story needs to be told in this dialect. That's very interesting. For sure. Well, there's kind of two different ways I would approach this, and it would totally depend on, is this person going in for an audition, or am I working with someone who's about to film something or do a show? Like, do they, have they booked the thing or mm -hmm. not? Because if they're going in for an audition, and, well, I'm, it also kind of depends if, they, if they're going to go shoot something, if it's going to be tomorrow or if they have, like, two weeks. Because that vastly changes yeah. how they're going to work with a person. Yeah. Um, so if they have to do something in just a couple days, then what we do is we're going to, unless there's someone who's really adept and just needs a brush up, I'm talking about, like, your average person who's like, I haven't really done uh, a German accent before and I have to go do this video game voiceover uh, in a week, you know, and, and I have a lot of text. What do I do? And we're just going to focus on a few major sounds first. I'm going to probably give them other sound change options and say, but this is a tertiary sound. You do not worry about this sound until you feel very comfortable with these primary and secondary sounds. Wow. So the people know, like, these are the ones that you need to hit. You need to hit this, and these need to be consistent in order to sell this. Then these are ones that are going to help you out and support you throughout the rest of it. And then these are the ones that, if we get them, that's gravy. That's how I kind of work with people when it's like a short turnaround. Because mm -hmm. there's just not a lot of – there's just only so much you can do in a short amount of time, you know, without thinking about it too hard. That's basically just in service of being able to get them out of their heads um, so that they can go in and just – act the thing um 
talking purely from a technical standpoint, not not hooking it to the artistry of the, uh, which is also I think a very helpful thing to do. Yeah. If I'm working with someone that is like, okay, I just booked this show. Like I work with a lot of people who like booked bigger shows, but they they don't think they're going to get a coach on the project, right? Um, or they're not sure how much coaching they're going to get, and they want to go to the read through and sound uh, like they know what they're doing. Yeah. Then we'll we'll work through it, you know. And then I'm giving them different things, or I'm giving them more basically, and saying these are the things you focus on first. Eventually, add this in, but this is most important, so mm-hmm. that they know to work in layers because you can only do so many things at once. Like huh. it, and certainly you can't do a billion sound changes at once and sound like a human being. It's just in certain accents, like too tall in order, you know, you need to be able to layer it in. So I'll, what I'll do is uh, for a lot of folks, we'll make sure to go through, there's a lot of times where I'll say like, okay, no, 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 stop. How would you say that if there were no accent, if this were just in your accent, how would you say this line? Mm-hmm. And then they'll say it. I'm like, okay, so what I'm hearing when you do it is I'm hearing this word and this word are what you're really activating. So how do we put that into the accent so I'm not just hearing every single word? Mm. I'll also make sure, a thing I tell all my clients is like, we need to be thinking phrase to phrase, image to image, idea to idea, not word to word. Because we don't speak in words, we speak in phrases, we speak in imagery. Sure. So you, you need to be like, where, okay, like, this is a full turn of phrase. Like, it, like if we're saying, uh, if someone has a line like, the more you know, like, that's a, that's fully a slogan, you know? So, like, <laughs> you can't think of it as the more you know. Oh, gosh, how do I say the? Right. Don't worry about how you're saying the. How are you saying more and no? Okay. You know, the more you know, yeah. that sort of thing. There's, uh, like, in a lot of British accents, the word Y-O-U-R and the word S-O-R are often very, very, what we would call de-voiced um, or unstressed. They're usually in a super unstressed position. They're there as like a support word, a springboard into the rest of the sentence, you know? Like um, like there's there's an exchange in Kinky Boots uh, where it says, London was for you. And she says, for us. So like, you're not, it, it's not London was for you. But because the vowel in for in that kind of accent is really extreme if you're stressing it for mm-hmm. for it's a lot of lip rounding mm-hmm. um or your that's yours that's it takes a lot of lip energy to make that and so it's really hard to make it sound casual mm-hmm. if you're doing that full expression of it right. so often i'll just be like think of it as like f apostrophe whatever it is or or f-u-h um like london was for you i'm saying like f and a schwa which is a, a basically like a filler vowel and unstressed yeah. non-specific vowel that we just we put in everywhere so like london was for you is much better than london was for you like that doesn't sound like a person so um we look for places like that how do we really just make sure we are activating the idea to start with thing starting with the what and not the how which yeah. seems kind of counterintuitive when you are in a session purely about but how do i say this but my my whole thing is it doesn't matter how authentic it is if i don't care you know now I have gone and seen a number of things and I have cared that the accents were bad because I'm at a Broadway show, you know, and it should be better. Right. But if it's really, really good, I will forgive a lot. You know what I mean? So, so we, we start with like, what, what are you trying to say? Now, how do we add the accent in as part of that? The easiest way I can also explain this kind of like embedding the, um, 
embedding the intention in is with uh, like a British general, British uh, accents on the whole. The Brits are very, we, they use more musicality than we do, but they're always connecting it to what they're trying to convey. So whereas Americans will we'll use a lot of like strong word emphasis and volume to indicate something important. No, listen to me. Come on. Like, we'll, we'll do a lot of punching of things. Very, we're very emphatic that way. Yeah. The Brits, of course, will do that. Absolutely. But they are more likely to also use pitch and duration to indicate something's important. They'll linger in something a little bit longer. And they'll mm. certainly use pitch to storytell. It's a little less direct, which is a, a little more, I think, stereotypically, anyway, British. So, like... If you watch the movie Sense and Sensibility, which is what I give everyone when they're working on our piece, like just put that on because all those people speak that way in interviews, you know, like they're not putting that accent on to do this movie. That's just how they talk. Um, so that's useful, but also because you have, they're all incredible actors. Elizabeth Briggs and Imelda Staunton play this comedic mother and daughter duo in it. And there's this one scene that I'll play for people a lot where they're like, everyone's sitting around, it's rainy outside and they're playing cards. And, uh, the Elizabeth Spriggs is this like older, um, Duchess character. Um, forgive me if I'm wrong. Uh, but, uh, she, she is so good at playing with the extremes of pitch in order to communicate something and also like show us who this woman is. So, so she has a little thing like, Oh, Miss Mary, come and play around with us. Looking out at the weather will not bring him back. Like she's not saying, looking out at the weather will not bring him back. Like she's <laughs> playing around. She's like needling her with the use of her pitch, like almost like trying to tickle her with her pitch. Looking out at the weather will not bring him back. Like, and just the way that they all, Imelda Staunton has this great thing where she finds out that someone's house is further away than she's like, whose house is only a mile away. And then, uh, someone says like a spy on house. She's like, five and a half no like just the extremes of the pitch and it's a perfect example of I'm granted they're playing like the clown characters but we still believe they're real people so like to to go how do I use different patterns to number one get me out of my own patterns which can be a very useful thing to do because we do a lot without realizing mm-hmm. that's just like we're just rolling out the same stuff we always roll out but also to remember it's going to be more musical because they're more musical, but it's never arbitrary. It's never to sound more British. It's like, well, I'm trying to vivify this for them right. and I need them to hear me. So Alan Rickman uses very few notes when he speaks, but man, does he maximize them. So like, if you listen to Alan Rickman, everything is so rich. There's so much pitch usage, but it's not a wide range. Um, it's just, it's all so connected to how he's trying to make this person feel or, or what he's trying to do with that. So, um, I think if you like go and, and watch British people like speak with that in mind, uh, it's kind of delightful to, to realize like, oh, that, that is exactly what on the whole they're doing. Uh, and then how do I make that work with all my other accents? I think that the, the British, uh, the RP example is the easiest because it's the like, kind of cleanest example of that. Mm-hmm. But, um, yeah, I mean, if you think of, uh, I heard, you know, people saying like costumes, um, you know, they were chosen by that character as like armor or as a weapon, you know, even if it, they don't feel comfortable in what they're wearing, it's like they've done the best that they can, you know. So if like I chose to wear this today for a particular reason, that's a you know, if you have a good costume designer you're collaborating with, like they right. that is gonna do a lot of work for you. 
So if you think of the accent as being just like that, it's like a costume for my voice. It makes me feel more of a character. You know, man, the times that I've been thrilled for pockets on stage, you know, I've been like, oh, thank goodness, this cardigan has pockets. Right. Now I have a character, right. you know, which like, of course, I had a character before, but it just makes it seem easier and like, ah, oh, something clicks. Like, ideally, your dialect does that to an extent as well, where you're like, okay, I'm, I'm going to use this to help me settle into somebody else's physical body. And, and so how do I use this as a way to help storytell? How do I, you know, especially with, with English plays, it's very easy because class is very easy to hear, you know. In a lot of American plays, it, it is and it isn't because we just don't talk about it as openly as they do. But absolutely, like, we can use that to indicate class. Like, a lot of people are like, I'm really proud to be, like, blue-collar. I'm from Philly. I sound like this. That, you know, oh, this is the way I talk. That oh, absolutely. So it, you can think of that as being, like, that's the way that that person carries them across. I actually talked to that when I was working with the folks on Billy Elliot up at Seacoast Rep in New Hampshire. There's lines in the play about, like, we're proud to be working class, and there's people from Geordie who are proud of being Geordie. Mm-hmm. Not people from Geordie. People from Newcastle who speak with a Geordie accent and call themselves Geordie are, like, ferociously proud of that. So they're going to, like, really, like, when they're encountering someone with with an RT, perhaps, it might actually get even more pronounced, it, whether out of fear or, or out of just, like, a defiance. So those are ways that you can look to start connecting it to, like, what I'm trying to convey, you know, to, to a person and therefore to an audience, like, to my scene partner and then the audience by proxy. I love it. And, uh... And just a couple more things, and I promise we'll get off this dialect stuff. And, <laughs> and as I predicted would happen, time has gone by. And uh, like I said, I'll, I'll have well, got like a good half an hour at least. Yeah, so. yeah. And we'll get, and then we'll hopefully uh, you'll come back and we'll continue. But but this is fascinating, and I, I did want to talk about it. So it's so it's totally uh, it's totally fine. But um, so and this relates somewhat to you know you were just talking about all the British stuff. I feel like you and I have actually had this conversation before a million years ago, but one of the things I'm so fascinated by is that, as you well know, there has been an explosion, and maybe it was there before, but, you know, it's much more obvious and apparent, and, and I think bigger these days, <clears throat> that for the last 10 years, maybe even 15 or 20 years at this point, British actors have taken over um, TV, film, etc., often playing American roles, doing these flawless American accents, and it's amazing. Um, but you can't help but go, well, why don't they just have an American person playing? I know that's like a very simple thing to say, but it is an interesting question, and... Uh, one of what you well, I can tell you several things if you want my thoughts on it. I know I do, and I was just going to say, you know, when you when you do some research into this, as I've tried to do, um, some of the things you find out, or some of the opinions or whatever about why this is the case, is is that for one thing, that British actors can do American accents so flawlessly is one example of the fact that they're very well trained and that they see acting as a very technical skill and hence their, 
you know, they, they, people see them, you know, they, they're thought of as good and reliable and that's why they get, they get work. But yeah, you tell me. Well, two parts. Number one, it's not new. Uh, the reason that there's, I mean, I don't know, uh, if you know this, but there's, there's a thing with actors equity where you, like an American actor can't just go to the UK and, and work in London. Right. You need special dispensation. And it's same for Brits coming over. And that, I believe, was instituted because there were too many British actors coming to New York and getting all the parts. And this, uh, that rule's in place for years and years. Okay. Now, partially because the, the, the pay is better in the States. Okay. So that's one yeah. reason why they want to come over here. Yeah. Probably pays a lot better than the West End. Yeah. Um, but then also, I think part of it is just like because of streaming, there's so much more available to us that we didn't necessarily know was there. Yeah. Um, and so... Brits have, Brits have been coming over and doing that for a long time. Now, with regards to the accent work, yeah, a lot of it is that they're, they're better trained than we are. The training is taken more seriously, and then it is, it's just more thorough <laughs> insofar as the text work, you know? So you have, you have people who are just more malleable and better at doing a lot of different kinds of text, and they're still more of a repertory system in Britain than there is here still. Yeah. Even though there's there's not much left in Great Britain the way there used to be, but there's still more opportunity for people to play and rep, and you just get better when you do that. Yeah. Now, as far as the accent stuff goes, there are plenty of Brits who do really piss poor American accents. Okay. Um, I think the the Australians on the whole, if we're going to just like generalize, the Australians are the ones who do the best American accents. Really? As far as like unclockable. You have Kate Blanchett yeah. and Naomi Watts yeah. and Nicole Kidman yeah. and Russell Crowe. You have all these people who it's like, oh, wait, you're Australian? Tony Collette. You know, you have all these people that you forget. Hugh, Hugh Jackman. Right? Hugh Jackman. Hugh Jackman. Exactly. Yeah. All these, they are incredible. Hugo Weaving. All these people that are Aussies that you forget are Australian. You're right. So you're right. I'm sorry. That, in I my just, opinion, there's also yeah, you're there's right. just there are fewer Australian actors that come over and hit than there are British actors. So also the pool to draw from is smaller, but they're all so good at the accents. It's like mind boggling to me. Um, but there are, there are a lot of British who are really good at American accents, but it's also like Hollywood's been the gold standard for so long. Like a lot of my friends who are non-native speakers who maybe learned British English in school speak with American accents because that's all the TV they watched. You know, they, they grew up watching The Simpsons or whatever. Mm-hmm. So they they uh, they have more exposure to it maybe than we did. And also, like, Americans tend to be a bit lazier about that sort of thing. And I think there is also, like, a Brits see it as a tool and Americans, uh, there's, there's maybe a bit of a misplaced, like, uh, that sounds snobby to me, so I don't want to sound like that. Like, there's certainly a whole generation of actors who are very, like, in love with their, like, athletic emotionalism. You know what I mean? I do think that Americans are, again, I'm speaking so generally. Of course. I think Americans are less less afraid of being super messy emotionally, but Brits are better technically, you know? So (laughs) of course. That's uh, that's generally seen as the uh, the common wisdom on that. So, by the way, I, if I'm not mistaken, Guy Pierce is Australian too, right? That's correct. That is correct. And the reason I thought of that is because I remember years ago watching a behind-the-scenes thing on LA Confidential, and this producer was like, yeah, so we were doing the casting, blah, blah, and we got this guy, uh, Russell Crowe, to play the guy, and he's like, oh, he's Australian. Oh, okay. 
And then we got this other guy, Guy Pearce. Like, he's Australian. Like, what? Two Australians both playing these American guys? Yeah. So. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. Now, last, last question on this, which is, when I, I have definitely noticed, and I'm, believe me, I'm, first of all, I couldn't do any of this stuff myself, and two, I don't have the ear you have, but when I know a certain actor playing an American is British, I definitely have found myself occasionally noticing them slip up a bit, hearing their British accent come out on just one little syllable or one little word, you know, and it happens, but do you think, though, an expert ear like yours, if you didn't know who it was or anything, and it was a British actor doing a really, really good job at an American accent, do you think you could still tell it was a British person doing an American accent rather than it being an American? If, if there's a tiny slip-up, yes. What I will often hear is that there is something very slightly off. Right. And I won't necessarily know what it is. So sometimes what I'll usually be thinking is like, I don't think this person's American. And then I will just start to listen a little harder. Yeah. And then if they're British, what I will usually hear, this is like, this is a big sound that you catch people out on a lot, is um, in in most British accents, because they're dropping the R, so it's what we call a non-rhotic accent. Mm-hmm. You can't have two vowel sounds butting up next to one another, which is why... You'll, you'll do what's called a linking R. If you have an R, say, at the end of a word, but the next word starts in a vowel sound. Like, if you have the line, like, my father was wonderful, then you're going to drop the R on father. My father was wonderful. Mm. But if the line is, my father is wonderful, and there's a vowel sound, you're going to link it. My father is wonderful. So, that's the rule of thumb for that. But now, when you have two vowels butting up next to one another, what they will often do, and you'll hear this in like a Boston accent or a lot of like uh, Brooklyn accent type uh, situations, is they'll intrude an R. Um, so, like, uh, we have a line in Kinky Boots uh, Lola is a professionally trained fighter. Instead of Lola, it, Lola is. If Lola is, they'll put that R in there. So sometimes you'll hear someone do a very light, unconscious, intrusive R. Right. And I'm like, ha, ha. I got you. Um, sometimes it is purely uh, their consonants are a little too front of the mouth, or they use more T's than D's. That's sort of, it's little stuff. Usually, usually people are really good. And I, there's there's been a couple times where I've been totally fooled. Um, usually, when I'm watching an American do an accent, I am I can hear the work, even if it's amazing. Like I'm usually like, oh. They're amazing. Like Billy Crudup and um, Harry Clark that was off Broadway last year. He's mm-hmm. amazing. But there were a few places where I was like, I would have liked that art, or oh, I would have done that. But like, but like, I'm talking like five, five places in an hour and a half of him talking yeah. nonstop, you know? Um, but yeah, if it's, if it's the reverse, like, oh, for instance, uh, I, I'd never seen Andrew Garfield in a movie. Mm-hmm. Um, so when I went and saw Angels in America, I didn't know if he was British or American. And a lot of what he was doing seemed like such a strong character take. Mm. But I was like, I would buy either, but I think based on his pitch usage, he's English. Like, that was just, again, I had no idea because I'd never seen him in anything. And then turns out, oh yeah, he speaks with a British accent. Like, but it's, it's, it's that kind of thing where it's just like, I like to hunt for that kind of stuff because I find it very satisfying <laughs> because Brits have this idea that we're so bad at their accents and they're so good at ours. But, they mess up too, so I find it very exciting to hunt, you know. I love um, but yeah, I'm not. 
I'm not Henry Higgins. I'm not like that in tune to be like, oh, well, you know, blah, blah, blah. They must be Scottish, you know, but um, I can usually hunt out at least if something's even slightly off. I find it fun. No, I'm saying I love it. That's why I I was so curious what you were going to say about that. Yeah, I love it. And it's funny, you know, you alluded to Hugh Laurie earlier. First of all, he's my favorite example because I'm obsessed with House. And Mm -hmm. it's such an amazing performance, not only for the accent with, you know, insane amounts of dialogue and... It's such an American character, too. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It's just got him, you know, it's ridiculous. And then you heard that behind the scenes they say, like, when he directed certain episodes later in the series and whatever, and he'll talk in his total normal, deep British accent when directing and when not doing a scene and just, and then just snap right into house. And they're like, whoa. Um now, he's actually a great example of someone who was not always great at an American accent. Like, okay, do I love artists get better. Like, if you watch him in, I uh, play uh, Vincent Minnelli in, uh, oh, whatever that, um, oh, I can't believe I'm blanking It's a Judy Garland um, biopic. And he's in that, and he's in Stuart Little. Like, he does a very serviceable American accent. But it sounds like, someone doing a good American accent. Right. It's not like what he's doing on House, which is seamless, which is unclockable. Like, it's just like, oh, good job. You really did. You you worked on this. As opposed to with House, where it's like, I mean, if I didn't know who you were, I, I would probably not be, my ear wouldn't be tweaked at all because the work is so good, you know? Yes. So I like seeing artists improve. No, that's, that's a great point. And by the way, again, not to keep getting personal, but I can't help it. I'm pretty sure, I don't remember the exact timing, but when I first saw House or knew about House, I didn't know anything about Hugh Laurie. I didn't know he was British. And I'm pretty sure you're the one who told me, and I you're know, the one who, I know I was. who showed I me, like, his old comedy. My mind was so blown. <laughs> yes, and then you, I think you introduced me to, like, Fry and Laurie and all that stuff, and I was like, whoa. So, yes, he, he's amazing. Okay, um, in the time we have left, and again, we, we will come back at some point and continue, but uh, thank you for indulging all that, because I really did want to get into that, and it is fascinating. Um, but let's talk a little bit about your acting career now. <laughs> um, so you do a lot of theater, both in and out of town, and you are in Actors' Equity. Um, do you have any interest in film, television, commercials, anything like that, or just theater? Yeah. It, yeah, definitely. It's just like less of what I do and not like where my focus is. But absolutely. I find I finally got to a point a couple of years ago. I did a project where finally being on camera didn't feel like being shot out of a cannon. Um, like, cause I've, I've done a few like indie films. I've done like two indie features, uh, where I have like small to like decently featured parts, but not, not like a huge time commitment. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I've done a lot of like comedy shorts, web series, that sort of thing. And, I finally got to a point where I was like, oh, okay, I don't, I don't feel absolutely like my adrenaline goes <gasps> as soon as the camera starts rolling. Cause I'm just so used to theater just feels like a very different beast. And when the camera's right there and like trying, I'm just trying to learn, you know, like I just know a lot less. I know when I'm on stage about like physical destination and how I look on stage and like 
like what I need to do like spatially. I'm just I'm just been doing it for so long that I'm working on it that I'm good at that. Whereas with the camera there it's a so holy ball game. So definitely interested. It's just you know not where the focus is currently. Yeah, and when you have done the on camera work, have you found it challenging at all to adjust? You know, there's that whole cliche about theater actors are way too big when they get in front of a camera kind of thing. I think that that is baloney. I think that what I actually think, I mean, yeah, there's a learning curve. Absolutely. But that's, I think it's more like, oh, I need to learn what the style is and adjust to that style. I think it's much more frequent that people who do a lot of film and TV have trouble adjusting to theater. Oh, sure. Have trouble filling the space, have trouble adjusting to the size required. Yeah. Um, where, whereas, like, actors who work a lot in theater, every play is a different style. Whereas on camera, you get that a lot less unless you have a character, uh, unless you have a director who has, like, a very particular style. They work in, like, a Tim Burton or a Wes Anderson or, uh, you know, that kind of thing where it is, the, the style is heightened. Most TV, the style is heightened. You know, maybe like Kimmy Schmidt, but even that, you're still playing people that you kind of believe you would see out in the world. It's just mm-hmm. like a little, a little more. Mm-hmm. But, um, but, but theater actors are used to playing all, all styles all day, every day. I did an audition last week. I kid you not. It was for a, a season. And I knew that people, I'd worked for these people before. So they, they let me come in for like, truly two-thirds of their season. So I went in for Caliban and the Tempest, Elizabeth Proctor and the Crucible, and then Sally Bowles and the MC in Cabaret. I read all of those in one 15-minute audition. Um, So it's just like, talk about that. I I legit had like different costume, not costume pieces even, but like for Elizabeth Proctor, I was like, all right, I'm going to throw this like shawl on so I don't don't see this like deep-cut V-neck situation I'm wearing for Cabaret was just so wrong for Elizabeth Proctor. So that's just like, that's a day. That was one day in my life that I'm doing all of those things. So there is a learning curve and it's definitely different being like, oh, I need to do less because the camera is in my face. I can think it rather than having to like express it physically. Like like, uh, when I saw the movie Chicago for the first time, I totally understood not necessarily how to do it, but what the difference was. In all that jazz, the there's choreography that is pretty sacrosanct that everyone does. It's like, da-da-da-da, bump-bump, and all that jazz, and all that bump-bump. Velma always, like, raises one hand, drops one, drops one hand. But Captain Zeta-Jones, they had her raise, like, open her eyes, close her eyes. Like, it's a eyelid movement with it when on stage it's the arm so that to me is like the difference is learning how to scale it and learning oh your face is really expressive so maybe you don't need to do so much but um it's yeah i mean it is it is a skill to learn for sure i don't mean to imply that it's it's somehow easier i just think it's it's a I don't know. It's it's always a little irritating when it's just like, oh, you'll stay, Jack. This is like, no, I'm trained really hard. I, <laughs> I can do a lot of things. You know what I mean? Absolutely. Well, last question, and then again, hopefully we'll continue another day. But, um, you know, you, uh, ha- you know, so a lot of the guests I've had on the podcast so far are musical theater actors um, who are relatively new to the city you know, within anywhere from a few months to a few years out of school. 
uh, and you are, you know, you have uh, more experience at this point, you know, uh, and the whole question of state, you know, equity and non-equity and all that. And, uh, you know, you are now equity. Uh, you weren't always, of course. Um, what advice would you give in general? And obviously, you know, certain things you can't control. At some point, you're forced into it or whatever, I believe. Uh, maybe not forced, but, you know, that at some point you have to or something. You, you, you can explain it better than I can. But, you know, generally, I feel like act- young actors are told, stay out of the union as long as you can to get experience and so that you're not limited on what work you can take. Plus, once you are equity, it costs you money, this and that. So looking back, or if you're counseling a younger actor who's in musical theater at this point, you know, what's your general advice or take on on when to join equity and, and that whole thing? Sure. I have to say, it's been, because I've, I've been in this city a, a while now. Yeah. It does feel like a long time ago that this was ever a question. Um, so I'm going to have to go back in the old memory bank. I was non-union for five years, mm-hmm. which now that I've been in the city for 13, it does not seem very long at all. But, of course, when you're in it five years, that was long. You know, if you just come out of college, which was four, of course, five years feels like forever. Yeah. Um, basically, I, I think it depends on what you do. If you are a really good dancer you're going to be able to go to dance calls and people can see immediately what you do and you're probably going to work more when you're younger anyway. So if you're a really solid dancer, maybe go for it. Although I do know that a lot, if you're mainly going to be working at like the regional theater level, it is an unfortunate reality that people are more likely to use their union chorus contracts on male dancers because there are fewer of them. Mm. Um, so it's a thing to think about. But like ultimately, I I knew I always wanted to be equity because I wanted to work in, like I wanted to make money as an actor. Like I wanted to be working with the best people possible. I also know that I'm a young character actor. And so for me, I was very valuable in a non-union market because people could have me play older and I could get stage time playing real roles. At small regional theaters, I could meet a lot of people, work with a lot of different people, and I was valuable to those companies because I was cheap because it was non-union. So I, I, I had opportunities to, I, I, let me put it this way. I took my card as the first real opportunity, but if I, there were other opportunities I could have sought out that would have given me my card, but I was like, I don't want to get it that way. Like I wanted to be able to put what I did on my resume to get my card. Not like I would put that on. A oh, resume. okay. Right. Like, this is, I didn't, I wasn't going to like drop be like, and this is the one, like I did, uh, I got my card doing nine at Speakeasy in Boston. Um, and I, I just, for me, I was like, I want to be able to put that on my resume, whatever it is. Meaning I didn't want, there were some children's theater tours you could go that a lot of people got their cards on. And I was like, I don't know. Those seem like things that people are mainly doing to get their cards, not because that's the job they want to be doing. Right. You know? Exactly. So I was just like, I don't, I, that wasn't my jam. I was like, I'd rather work for a little bit longer. And then if I'm desperate, maybe I'll, maybe I'll try something like that. There were also 
there used to be certain places you could work that you could get your cards that were just like not interesting to me as far as like I don't think you can do it that way anymore. Uh, like the Jekyll and Hyde Club used to, you could work there as like a oh, that's right, work. that's right. I remember and get your that. Card. Yeah. and I was like, not for me, baby. Like I like a, a, no shade to anyone who wants to do that, but I was like, I I. I'm so glad I listened to my instincts on this. I felt for me, it was important to earn it just like a slightly more traditional way. And then uh, the way I ended up negotiating for my card, which is how a ton of people I know got their, got their card is technically you only need to work. I think it's two weeks on an equity contract in order to qualify for membership. Okay. Um, so what I did is I booked, I booked this production of Nine at Speakeasy, which is a theater that, not, that's where I did Fun Home um, in Boston just recently. Um, but it's a theater that was run by uh, a, a guy named Paul Daniel, who I'd known since college. He was a, the directing emphasis teacher while I was there. Now he teaches a bunch of other stuff. But, so he saw me as a student performer in a lot of things. And so I was friendly with him. So I like got called in. I went to Boston. Like, I went to Boston. For the audition. I've been waiting auditioning in New York, but I was like, I want this job and I think I could get my card if I do it. So they offered me a role and it was definitely as a non-union performer. They weren't going to give me my card, but I said, because it was like six months out. So I was like, hey, I would like to get my equity card. Would it be possible for you to prorate my pay for the first however many weeks of the contract so that the final two weeks you pay me the equity minimum and I can get my membership? And they're like, yeah, that's no problem. Like, they have to put in for your health week, so it costs them a tiny bit more. But most companies, like, if they like you, are totally willing to do that. And that's how a ton of people I know have gotten their cards. Um, it has to be a theater that can give you EMC points or could give you your card. It can't just be, like, because there were some theaters I worked for that were doing guest artist contracts, which means, like, they could work with equity performers, but they were not an equity house. So, like, I, I joined the union with zero EMC points. I had never worked for a theater that could even give me EMC points. I had worked with a lot of really fabulous people. I'd done a lot of readings. I'd worked with, like, fancy people, but never in a fancy place. So, I, again, that's to say, I took it at first opportunity, but for me, first opportunity was five years into being in New York. So I had a resume. Like, I didn't have any educational credits left on my resume, which for me, being the type of actor that I am, the kinds of things that I do, was important. A lot of people really struggle once they join the union because then you're in a pool with everybody else, whereas when you're non-union, you can be working all the time if you're good. People are thrilled that you've come into the room. Once you join the union, you join in with everybody else. So that's like, you know, Katrina Life who just won a Tony. You're up and we're in that same pool. You know, so it is a thing to think about not necessarily jumping the gun on it. Um, but again, you, I think, know if you're ready. I think so many people want it because of the audition situation in New York. Um, but I would just encourage people to be really smart about how they're going after auditions. You know, like, are they looking at different theaters that they'd like to work with websites to see what they're doing? Like, are they self-submitting to those things, like, at the top of the season? Are they, like trying to foster relationships with directors and with creatives. I, I find all that to be how I've gotten most of my jobs, you know, um, is through referrals. And, um, and, and that is more important than the equity card because that's what's actually going to get you in the room once you're at a certain point, you know? So I would say it's so different for every single person. Again, totally depends on your skill set, but, 
you know, uh, it's, at a certain point, you do want that stamp of legitimacy yeah. uh, if you're going to be working in like a, not that to be non-union is not working in a serious way because it totally is and it's really, it can be very difficult because you're in less than ideal circumstances. So I, I don't mean to imply that that's not real work because I've made some of my favorite jobs where when I was non-union. But as far as like working the business in a serious way, meaning like I am a professional, I I am in the union for a reason and people have to like follow these rules to work with me because I have earned my spot here. I always knew I wanted that. So at a certain point, ideally you, you, you find the time that feels right and you go for that. But, um, I'm not a fan of people buying in from SAG. Like if, if they were like me, if it, and, and they had a lot of credits and just hadn't gotten a contract that made it available, that's different. If it's someone with no credits and they buy in from SAG, um, but they don't have any theater credits. It, I just don't think it's the smartest way to go about it because you don't know anybody. Yeah. You know, if you haven't worked anywhere, you don't know anybody. And then how are you going to get jobs? That's that's basically what it is. I just would say also don't don't think that somehow magically once you get your equity card, EPAs are going to start working for you. EPAs suck no matter <laughs> who you are. You can get jobs from them. I've certainly gotten jobs from EPAs. I got a call back from an EPA last week, but they are not designed with the actors in mind, you know what I mean? If they're not really. Um, so I wouldn't, I would say don't, don't get it just cause you're like, well, I want to get seen at EPA. It's like, yes, of course. But also that's not the best way to get a job. It is a way, but only one, not the way. So that's what I would say about that. No, I think that's great. And that's a perfect note to go out on. By the way, speaking of non-union work, looking back way back, <laughs> Oh my gosh. You and I met in a non-union show, a non-union Shakespeare thing. We did it at like schools and places in New Jersey or whatever. But I will say, and this is of course, you know, one of the things about acting and whatever. I met you then. And I don't know if you remember Ann Court, but she and I, I she and I have remained close friends all these years and still are. So you know, you meet you meet the best people too. Oh, so sure. there's a yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot to recommend it, and everybody's got to start somewhere. You know, go out and Joe, go out and get time logging the hours on the boards. You know, absolutely. All right, well, Amy, I want to thank you so much. Uh, hopefully, you'll come sure. back at some point, and we'll continue because, uh, as I predicted, I just, there's tons more ground I want to cover with you. Um, okay. Um, do you want to share any website or social media or anything? Yeah. My website is amyjojackson.com, and that's Joe, J-O. There's no no E, uh, amyjojackson.com, and I'm on Instagram and Twitter at amyjojackson. And I have a Patreon, uh, which uh, I just started about a month ago, which is all uh, to help support uh, my cabaret work. Um, and that's really fun. I have a lot of fun content that I'm I'm uh, putting on there. Uh, if, if you're familiar, not familiar with Patreon, it's basically like a platform that allows artists to be supported directly by the people who like engaging with their work. So it's kind of like gives you some behind the scenes stuff and all like first dibs on any like discount codes or uh, videos, anything like that. So, um, so I just started that yeah, maybe two weeks ago and it's, uh, I don't know, it's really fun and it's, it's great to have that support and help me in the, in the unglamorous world of self-producing uh, when paying musicians gets very expensive very quickly. Uh, so yeah, that's, that's patreon.com, uh, slash Amy Jo Jackson. And I'm also on YouTube at youtube.com slash Amy Jo Jackson. 
Uh, excellent. We will post all these links on the show notes to this. Um, and if anybody wants to reach me about the podcast, you can at Craft Business Life Podcast. That's all one word. Craft Business Life Podcast at gmail.com. So, Amy, thank you again so much. And uh, to everybody listening, uh, until next time. Bye-bye.